Hello and welcome once more to the Startup Survival Podcast with me, your host, Peter Harrington. In this, the final episode in Series 2, I'm going to be joined by Jane Murray, who will help me to think through your entrepreneurial future. Jane will be sharing how the early adoption of key behaviours and completion of important tasks, especially if you seek or have secured any kind of investment, will give you the best chance of realising your ambitions. I'll also be asking Jane about unseen challenges startups face, managing entrepreneurial expectations, the lure of wealth and much more. But before I talk with Jane, let's take stock for a moment. This second series all began in January 2021, right in the middle of another prolonged UK lockdown. Yet here we are, 15 podcasts, 8 months and 2 jabs later. Whilst this wretched pandemic is still alive and kicking, some economic indicators are beginning to point to recovery. Yet for many, startup life remains a real challenge. And that's why you should know that throughout this crisis, it's been so important for me to provide support by writing and publishing these podcasts. And as shared along the way, I have learned so much from your feedback, as well as from the guests whose generosity and talent has made this project possible. Every week, I listen again to a different show. And when tuning in, I always hear and learn something new. My hope is that this series continues to provide you with reference points and resources as well as resonating thoughts and ideas that you can always revisit, use and, of course, share. Thanks to the delights of the digital airwaves, I'll be joined by Jane Murray in just a minute. Jane is a seasoned entrepreneur and investor who will be helping you to think through your entrepreneurial future. But since we don't know what your venture does, this episode is not really about improving your organisational performance. Moreover, it is about sharing a philosophy of thinking and showing you likely trajectories for you and your business, especially if you work with others. Jane and I will be discussing behaviours as well as common errors ambitious entrepreneurs make when starting out. We will also be considering the remedial decisions and actions people can take and when they need to take them. Like my expert guests Alex Simmons and Devon Smiley, who shone in the last two episodes, Jane Murray is a practising authority in her field. The founder and CEO of Peacebeam, as well as a lawyer and former managing director at Mayfair Venture Capital, Jane is a leader of kindness capitalism. She has also been advising, mentoring and coaching entrepreneurs for 25 years. So let's get her onto the show. Jane Murray, welcome to the Startup Survival Podcast. Oh, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Ah, Jane, thank you. Now, now, before we dig into the subject matter, can you share how and why your background and experience can help startups think through their future? Sure. So, um, well, as you said, I think in the introduction, I'm the CEO of Peacebeam, um, 
uh, I'm also a lawyer and I was a venture capitalist for about 20 years. And during that period of time in my career, I started off as a general counsel to a venture fund and then went on to become managing director of that fund. And so during that time, I was concerned always with the kind of progression of, and we, we specialized in seed and early stage investments. So I was concerned always with the progression from seed and early stage to exit, right? Because our business as venture capitalists was in the exit. Um, and so, uh, so that, that was my professional background and I was involved in the legal aspects of that, obviously the kind of negotiating of the deal at the beginning and then the negotiating of the exits at the end. And I have personally started five of my own businesses and PeaceBeam is the fifth. Um, and at PeaceBeam, I'm very concerned with dealing with some of the kind of shadow aspects that I observed during my career as a venture capitalist so that we can plan for them and avoid them um, as they arise or at least attempt to, right? You know, so, um, so that's my background. And I think... Um, that's why you and I are speaking today is because it's quite a broad background, a broad general background in terms of the progression from the heady days at the beginning when we're all excited about our projects and we're looking for investment. So then what happens when you are approaching exit and um, when you actually have an exit, which we all imagine is going to be the best thing that will ever happen to us um, and often is, um, is mixed. <laughs> Ah, now I'm intrigued by your word shadow there, Jane, as it suggests that unsaid things, not so good things about the world of entrepreneurship lurk in the background. Promoters, and I'm one of them, are prone to talking up entrepreneurship, the freedom, the challenge, and of course, the opportunity to make your own money. But are you suggesting people also need to know about some of the less well-known realities and by doing so better prepare themselves for the future they seek? Yeah, I think I think that's right. And actually, um, at Peacebeam, we made a decision quite early on that we weren't going to seek external investments, that we were going to bootstrap as much as we possibly could. And that in terms of um, an exit, it was a much longer term proposition. Whereas previously, certainly as a venture capitalist, we were always interested in kind of, uh, I mean, forcing is a strong word, but I think it's appropriate, you know, forcing an exit at, you know, at the, at the earliest possible opportunity. And I think it's very important for entrepreneurs at the beginning that they think about, you know, what, what is my uh, three year or five year plan, not in terms of a business plan, but for you as an individual, for you as a development uh, project, because we're all our own development projects. Um, and what that might mean for you in if you take this business to um, if you're heading towards an exit or if it's going to be a lifestyle business that is going to support some other aspects of your life or development. And I think, you know, there is a there's a, there are lots of assumptions made at the very beginning of the journey that obviously, you know, you're going to build the business, you're going to scale and then you're going to exit. But that isn't always going to be true for everybody it isn't necessarily what everybody wants and certainly as a venture capitalist that was one of the issues that we continually ran into is that management had not fully appreciated firstly how quickly three or five years go by and that the their sense of identity um 
changes so dramatically when they're heading towards an exit um, and after the exit that the issues that arise then, they're very unprepared for. And there was a lot of conflicts then between um, the investment um, community, if you like, around a company. We were usually co-invested um, and with the management. And there was a great deal of conflict around how we attribute value at that stage because people have different ideas. Um, even though everything's in the term sheets at the beginning, you know, when you're three or five years down the road, people have very different ideas. Okay, so Jane, you make a number of salient points, not least the fact people write plans for their business, but often don't set plans for themselves. I think one of the reasons entrepreneurs often don't do this is because they don't know what they don't know. And that's why it's so good to have you here on the show, since you've experienced the entrepreneurial journey from various perspectives. Can you shed any light and provide advice as to how startups of any makeup should be thinking for themselves? Well, I think one of the one of the important things to be aware of for all entrepreneurs um, is that the difference between the interior landscape of the entrepreneur and the company is um, that veil is very thin. And what we tend to do is that we identify ourselves as the company. And the um, I mean, and, and that is that is one of the great creative aspects of the entrepreneurial archetype. But the shadow of that is that we cannot separate our own individual self from the destiny of the company. Um, and so in terms of advice about how to go about maybe having a healthy understanding of the distinction between self and the company. I think that probably the best advice that I could give is to seek a mentor as early on as possible, who is going to help you talk through these quite fine issues. Because often when when we're talking about our business, we're actually talking about ourselves, but we're not really aware of that. And, you know, an experienced mentor or somebody who's been through the process of starting their own company can listen and hear for where that conflation has happened. Um, And, you know, guide you hopefully to being able to separate those two things out. One of the things that I do when I'm advising um, companies and particularly the kind of leaders of those companies is that I ask them to make a list of their own demands or needs or requirements from life. Um, And that's actually incredibly difficult for most entrepreneurs to do because that's where they start to identify, I can't tell the difference between me personally and the destiny that I imagine for this company. Um, So that's the first thing. And then I usually ask people to then plot a three or five year timeline and to, and to have on that timeline their personal life and the life of their company. And that's usually the most instructive way for somebody to practically understand, hang on, actually, these are distinct. I mean, they're really close and they mirror each other, but they're distinct. So, um, but you need someone really to talk, to talk that through with. So, I mean, I, you know, I tend to always bang on about the importance of um, having mentors. And, and I do that because I didn't have any when I was at the very beginning of my career or the beginning of um, 
developing as an investor or the beginning of developing as an entrepreneur. I didn't have uh, good mentorship at that stage. And so, and because of that, I can identify, you know, how vital that is, you know, and it can steer, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't make mistakes, obviously, but it can steer you away from some stagnation or dark forests that, you know, you don't necessarily want to get lost in. <laughs> now, that reminds me of a role I was asked to play with a new business about eight years ago. Three guys were starting their very first venture and wanted my advice as to how best to get their teamwork bearings. I suggested they should sit down together and one by one share their personal concerns, expectations and ambitions. Just how valuable is that as an exercise? I think it's incredibly healthy. In fact, I think it's vital but it's only useful if it's true, right? Because we tend, um, where we aren't clear about um, our own needs or demands or expectations, we can start to, with the best will in the world, we start to think, well, what might, uh, what might everybody else like? What might suit the group here? And that's what I'm going to bring. And we're not doing that to deliberately lie necessarily, but simply because we haven't gone through that reflective process ourselves. So I think where people, particularly where co-founding teams are sitting down, um, and I think that's an incredibly important, healthy thing to do at the beginning, but they would have to be clear that they were all bringing something authentically and vulnerably to the group, you know. Um, I think that we can tend to um, ignore parts of our expectations or needs or demands that, uh, you know, make us vulnerable, uh, but they're the ones that we need to bring. Right. Like because because as a co-founding team or as a group of entrepreneurs, it's it's people's vulnerabilities that you're going to be managing through the, you know, the kind of three or five years of the early stage of your company. OK, so you mentioned truths and being truthful with one another. Can you explain why when it comes to what some may see as difficult conversations, founders don't deliberately lie, but they don't tell the truth either? I think the best way to answer that is to is to give you um, an example from, you know, when I was uh, when we were invested in it was one of our main investments. It was in mobile telecoms, which was kind of our sweet spot in the fund. And at the beginning of the process of this investment, we were very clear about our exit expectations and the group that were gathered together as the co-founding team, if you like, um, all agreed that they were their expectations as well. And they were, you know, delighted to be on board with that. They, um, our expectations meant that there was a particular roadmap for the direction of the company and for the direction of the development of the products. And that also meant it was, um, that determined location for where the company was going to be located, where the sales were going to be. And that obviously affects people's personal lives, right? You know, because it meant that people were, were moving and all the rest of it. And everybody um, at the beginning was absolutely on board and they were really excited and they were gung-ho about this. And the reason uh, it then, needless to say, the wheels came off because people were did not want to necessarily move to America, or if they did move to America, they needed to bring, you know, X, Y, and Z with them. Um, and the reason 
that they weren't necessarily truthful at the beginning was not because they were deliberately lying, but because what was at stake was potentially losing an investment, losing a dream, losing an idea of themselves. And so those parts of themselves were being suppressed and they thought, I I'm not going to I'm not going to say that I couldn't possibly leave my family um, for six months because then we then X, Y and Z. Right. Um, but then, you know, when that comes to um, the, you know, the financial implications of one of the team not wanting to move and it's a vital coda, right, um, not wanting to move or if he was going to move, he was going to bring his family, that creates enormous problems later on. Resentment with the other um, co-founders, uh, issues with the investors. Um, and, you know, I, it, it, at the time, it was handled incredibly badly by everybody because nobody had any emotional intelligence at all. Um, I would like to think that these days, those kinds of things would be handled differently. But, you know, that wasn't a question of this person lying. It was just... Um, their own needs were suppressed below everybody else's collective expectation. Okay, it's clear to me that people's truthful expectations are at the absolute axis of thinking through the entrepreneurial future process. And you've mentioned that people struggle to separate personal and company identity. How critical is it that a skilled professional is in the room, someone who makes sure the appropriate level of challenge and rigour is present, someone who allows people to have the space and confidence to speak honestly without giving in to invisible and sometimes artificial peer pressure? Well, I mean, I think it's vital. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily very easy to find those kinds of people who have the, who have the experience who have the understanding of the kind of um, racing lines that are being picked, because that's one thing I think, uh, you know, for people who are looking for that kind of advice, you need to find somebody who has sufficient experience to understand cause and effect and consequence. And that sounds like a kind of an obvious point, but often it's unless you've been through the experience of the trajectory of a company, it's impossible to say that you know, one decision is naturally going to lead to several others. Um, and so I, I often find as well that people with a professional background, either kind of a, um, accountancy, law, even HR, those kinds, of, those kinds of disciplines often give them a little bit more insight into consequence. Um, so that's something to kind of consider as well is you know, maybe it's something that you can find in your advisors. Talking through the issue of expectations with Jane takes me back to the early 90s when I became the manager of an up-and-coming band called 12 Angry Men. Their music was quite mercurial and for avid followers and music buffs, I've left a link in the podcast blog reference section so you can hear a couple of their tunes. But back to the band and its entrepreneurial fortunes. Sadly, as a band manager, I wasn't up to much. Whilst I secured highly favourable national media reviews, I had not thought through the fact that this recognition would lead to invitations for the band to play on weeknights at venues 200 plus miles away. Unfortunately, when I put this opportunity to the group, three of the five said they, they couldn't travel because of daytime work commitments. 
my first job as a band manager should have been to ask the five lads to speak honestly and openly about their expectations and levels of commitment. Lack of foresight and understanding that actions have consequences ultimately led to the band's demise. Now, back to Jane, because I want to ask her about another critical issue that underpins the way we think through our entrepreneurial future, especially when working with others. And this is the issue of trust, a subject I first covered in episode three in series one. Jane, my first question on the subject is simply this. Why is trust such an important issue, especially at the startup phase? I think trust is incredibly important at at any stage because, and I would just say it as, as, as kind of simply as this, because trust is a creative state of being. Um, where there is an absence of trust, it is a destructive state of being. Uh, when trust is present, people are willing to kind of move towards creativity with each other. Where it's not present, we're inclined to move towards a destructive environment with each other. So I think that that's, you know, that's its, that's its function. And, you know, that can, that, that's as applicable to a family or a relationship as it is to a business, right? In terms of how we, how we measure um, the presence of trust, you know, again, I'd say it simply, right? Talk is cheap, right? Like we can all say all kinds of lovely things and exciting things and, um, uh, you know, potential, we can deliver potential with what we say, but the key thing is what people do, right? And that has to be, and I'm, I'm not talking about KPIs here, right? I, I'm talking about that people do what they say that they are going to do. And if it's not possible or it hasn't been done, that they are willing to have a conversation about that openly and explain, you know, the reasons why what they said was going to be done wasn't done. That's how trust is built. It's not, it's not rocket science, right? But I think what happens is that those conversations are either avoided uh, or a defensiveness comes in. And, and when that happens, you know, all kinds of things start to happen. We start to lie to each other. We start to lie to ourselves. Um, and weeds start to grow. And this is one thing that I observed with almost, in fact, I might say with every company, and this is actually a reflection on, on us as investors at the time, um, where those weeds of distrust or defensiveness start early on, they seed the next cycle. So it's the next cycle of funding, those weeds grow, the resentments grow. Wow, I'm intrigued by your weeds metaphor. I've never heard this horticultural reference used in the entrepreneurial space. Can you explain and share what you mean by weeds, Jane? So again, I think I'll just, you know, describe it using another um, example of one of the companies that we were invested in. The first time that weeds started to grow, and when I say weeds, I mean resentments, I mean grudges, I mean, that kind of, you know, that sharp feeling that we can get just in the pit of our stomach that, you know, we can suppress or it can move beyond our consciousness, but it might be at the beginning of a meeting, 
that you suddenly feel something shift internally and you think mm. there's some some negativity is present here they're they're the weeds that i mean right and it's 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 grudges and it's resentments so in one of the companies that we were invested in that was present at the time of our investment the founding team believed that we had undervalued their work and we believed that they were overvaluing their company and we we agreed a number and we agreed the term sheet and we agreed the exit provisions and all the rest of it and everybody swallowed their resentment and their grudges and that just you know they just then started to flourish they flourished in an atmosphere of silence <laughs> in an atmosphere of lying in an atmosphere of aggression whenever numbers were challenged or there was a, a, a call for further funding and then when there was we went to series a and there were other investors involved those weeds then spread those resentments and grudges and this idea that you undervalued me or I undervalued you or you think you're great because you're bringing the money and you think you're great because you wrote the code all of this kind of stuff which sounds incredibly childish because it is right but that's what's actually going on that then spreads to the relationship between the investors so you then have this infected kind of shareholder cohort as well as the increasingly disgruntled founder team. So that's what happens when trust isn't present from the beginning. Fascinating. From my experience, I think weeds are an inevitable consequence in almost any business because people are different, yet they continuously face challenges and strive to overcome them, often in, in diverse ways. Jane, can I ask, what behaviours are effective weed killers? that can be adopted by the gardeners, the harvesters of, of entrepreneurial life? Well, I think on a personal level, um, reflection, you know, kind of, the, and I would recommend a daily reflection practice where people, you know, take, whether it's five minutes or 10 minutes at the end of each day, and they run through the day about, you know, what happened, what they were grateful for, what they were furious about and what patterns are emerging. And, and, and you know, you start to see patterns really quickly when you when you go through um, a daily examination practice. And then I think collectively amongst the kind of co-founders, there, there has to be a check-in and it's a check-in meeting about how everybody is, whether their expectations are being met. Do they feel that the company is heading in the direction that they wanted it to head in? All of those like really difficult questions and conversations. But I think when they're had regularly, they become easier. It's like everything, you know, we can practice, we can practice being better at communicating with each other. And sometimes that might need facilitating. Um, and if you have investors, then I would recommend that, um, well, firstly, before you take investors, that you're sure that those conversations are able to be had. And that will be clear from the very beginning and that you maintain those conversations with them as they go through. One thing I would say, having been an investor that we found most frustrating is that issues were not flagged early enough by the co-founding team. And I understand why people are scared. They think, you know, they, you know there's a very parent-child relationship that can develop between investors and um, founders. Avoid that at all costs, really, you know. Um, and you, you, it, that's going to require a degree of vulnerability and authenticity on the part of the founders. But you know, crossing that difficulty 
is uh, is is easier than some of the difficulties that can arise later on. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, Jane. Reflection helps us to recognise the positive and negative patterns in our own behaviour and also aids us when it comes to understanding tension with others. And of course, appreciating tension is not just the other side's fault, but recognising and admitting our failings and asking difficult questions at the get-go when the entrepreneurial journey looks so rosy, exciting and fun takes real bravery. But, But how important is it? I think it's really important. I think one really practical way to deal with it is at the beginning, set a drop dead date. Um, And that's usually like kind of, I would say, give it 12 months, six months, maybe. And this is, you know, this is at the very, very beginning of the journey. You set a drop dead date and that is the date that you check in. You see whether the expectations are being met. You can see what weeds have set in. Do we need to do something about that? If we continue, what are we going to be facing Is it worth not continuing for a variety of different reasons? And I think people are scared to set a drop dead date because we're scared that, you know, we're scared of failure, right? But, you know, our lives are made up of growing through failure. Um, But once people get into the habit of these difficult, frank conversations, do the chats get harder or easier? In my experience, much easier, much easier. So, I mean, it is natural for me now to have those conversations. And I know sometimes people are taken by surprise because I, I, you know, I ask very di- direct questions. If I see that somebody seems unhappy um, or I, you know, I can read their body language, then I will ask, I'll ask them directly, not necessarily in front of everybody, but I'll find an opportunity to do that because it's in everybody's best interests that we know. If there is, you know, grave unhappiness or resentment or grudges, you know, I mean, they're, they're awful things for us to carry through our lives. Okay, and, and in your experience of dealing with company leaders and entrepreneurial teams, Jane, what, what percentage have grudges and resentment? I think, I mean, I don't know, I'd say nearly 100% of them, but I think it's a question of how thick or thin that coverage is, right? Um, you know, I think inevitably, right, we're going to have uh, you know, we can't be pleased all of the time, right? And we're not going to have all of our expectations met. But if we start from the premise that we know what our expectations are and we know what everybody else's is, right, your chances of managing conflict where they're not met inevitably is going to be better than if everybody is kind of lying to themselves and to each other at the beginning and then expecting magically to be able to resolve those issues later on. And I think, you know, where these become most acute is at exit. And certainly in my experience with, um, with our fund, the most lucrative exits caused the most resentment and um, grudge holding, which sounds ludicrous, but money amplifies, right? And it also amplifies, um, I mean, I would go further and I would say hatreds. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen absolutely remarkable breakdown of relationships, people's um, sense of identity, um, all kinds of trouble that arises when an exit happens. Okay, I I imagine most people listening to this won't be at the exit stage with their venture, but perhaps dream one day of making their fortune by selling the business. Can you provide a reality check of what can happen at this final stage, Jane, if it is not thought through inclusively and carefully? Sometimes, even when it's not thought through, 
it goes okay, right? Like people are happy enough, right? happy enough. And, you know, we'll take that. That's good enough. Sometimes um, it might be that some of those weeds that we talked about have um, become so established that you would have um, kind of an internecine warfare between all of the parties, some negotiating separately, some, you know, um, I mean, we've, we had an occasion where the, um, the shareholders agreement was clear on exit uh, and some of the shareholders in our, our cohort negotiated something differently with the purchaser. Um, and that was brutal, <laughs> but it happens. Another very extreme version that I lived through, and this really was um, brutal, was where the, um, the shareholder cohorts that we were co-invested with went as far as to force the company, which had a product and a process, which was very valuable, forced it into liquidation. And then, um, and then we had a Phoenix situation where it was bought from the liquidator and set up and we were excluded entirely. Um, so, you know, you've got the whole smorgasbord of, you know, human possibility <laughs> in terms of what what can happen. Um, and which is why, you know, I, I'm really I'm very passionate that communication, clarity, authenticity from the very beginning and being willing to say, you know, even if you think it's not going to be a popular thing to say, at least if you said it, people know people know from the beginning where you stand. Um, that's a much better prospect than going through, um, you know, some of the some of the exits kind of, you know, whether they're forced or they are agreed um, later on. Now, what you've shared so far, Jane, is so perceptive and shrewd, and it brings me to a big question. Many entrepreneurs dream of success, financial freedom, and maybe great wealth. But in your experience, does money make people happy? No, of course not. No money doesn't make people happy either, right? So, uh, there's a really interesting study, actually, which is done by Harvard over about 30 years, um, where they took people and they, you know, they monitored them uh, about life satisfaction and all the rest of it. And that has shown up that, you know, the, the most important things for people are relationships. That's, that's the measure of happy is, is, is how good your relationships are. And they found that um, $70,000 is about the optimum earning that anybody can ever have. Over that, you're no happier. Under that, life has some challenges and uh, stresses. So, you know, and, and that increases with the kind of, you know, uh, the, the, as that amount goes down. But no, money, money doesn't make anybody happier. And often, my experience is that it amplifies um, dissatisfaction. Okay, so the strong suggestion is that wise entrepreneurs will always prioritise healthy and sustainable relationships, both internally and externally, and by doing so will add value to wider society. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, but I, one thing I would say, I think particularly with social impact um, companies is often... Um, I observe that often they are the ones where the conversations are not had properly. 
that has been my experience because everybody thinks because we this is a social good that we're engaged in this is a social enterprise that we're all on the same page but you know that page is huge right and we can be all we can be at very different places on that that page and it's a way sometimes of bypassing the difficult conversations about people's relationship to money you know what is your expectation from this what do you want there's nothing wrong with wanting to make money from things nothing wrong at all but where that is your only objective and it is at any cost you know it, a co-founder might need to know that right or an investor might need to know that or if that's the investor's objective you know as a founding team you, you need to know that so that's what I mean about you know communication authenticity at the beginning like know what's what's at play here know your own motivations know your own agendas um, and, you know, if if it is that and, and startups, you know, going into business demands a huge amount of yourself, but it also demands an enormous amount from your relationships, from the people who are closest to you. Right? Be clear about that and be clear about, you know, if if that is going to be the case when you, when you're looking at your timeline, for example, and you're looking at the development of the company, you know, be clear about the impact that that's going to have on your relationships on your family, on or maybe even on your expectation of having a family, right? Like that's the other thing to um, bear in mind. Yeah, thanks, Jane. So pleased you've referenced social impact companies and also highlighted how starting a new venture affects the people around us too. So, so to help people think through their entrepreneurial future, is there any final advice you'd like to offer listeners, especially if they are in the early stages of startup? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing, um, and, and it sounds incredibly simple and simplistic, so it could be easily dismissed, but I really mean this. A daily reflection practice is absolutely vital for entrepreneurs and people who are leading. Vital. I would engage with that first, right? And that develops our own muscles in terms of how truthful we are with ourselves um, and then how truthful we're going to be with other people about what our expectations are. Having the um, conversations with your co-founding team, if you have a co-founding team, um, and building that in as a, as a practice, you know, so set regular drop dead dates, like review every six months. Are we still all on board here? Is this what everybody wants to be doing with their lives? And don't be fearful about that. Don't be fearful about, often we avoid those things because we don't, we think we don't want to hear bad news. Um, but remarkable things come from those conversations, you know, I mean, pivots, um, fresh ideas, understandings, all kinds of things come from those meetings. Do the same thing with your investors. Be careful about the investors that you have. But I mean, that's a huge other conversation, but obviously that's an obvious thing. And then I think the, the, the fourth thing that I would say, and I think this is the thing that I would really like to stress. In my experience, there is no other way of life or way of earning a living or being in this world that can give you the opportunities for growth and um, self-development and um, personal fulfillment that are possible from the entrepreneurial journey. There is nothing else that is almost a complete um, mental, emotional and spiritual ground of development. Um, and, and if you treat it like that, and you allow yourself to uh, be in that space where you're bringing all the parts of yourself that are frightened um, but can grow, the possibilities 
are extraordinary, whether or not you make a great exit, right? Um, and I, th I would really recommend as well, there's a great organization um, that's just started in the US called Second Time Founders. And it's an invitation only thing. It's from people who've made big exits and then hit a wall, who've realized, you know what, that was that almost killed me. Um, but I want to do it again and I want to do it in a different way. It's a really, it's a really extraordinary um, organization. And they have a they have a podcast and um, it's invitation only, but the, you, you can listen to the podcast. I really recommend that people um, you know, have a listen to those experiences where people have been through that, particularly that kind of meteoric, um, you know, creating a unicorn and actually what's happened to them personally, because the cost in terms of health, uh, physical health, emotional health, mental health, relationships, all kinds of things has often been incredibly, um, has been huge for those people. But they do know, right, that there is no other way that you can, um, or, the, you know, it, it is the one place where you are offered the opportunity for this extraordinary um, development of yourself, like understanding who you are as a person, understanding who you are as a leader, understanding what you're capable of, understanding what your limitations are. So it's a huge privilege to be able to do this. And that's fantastic. And the podcast is free for anyone to listen to? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Secondtimefounders.com. Great. Now, now, before we say our farewells, is there any last point you would like to make? Yes, I would. There's one thing that I would like to say as a lawyer, that um, my experience is that people go to a great deal of length to negotiate agreements and we're backwards and forwards and we're, you know, this term sheet should say this and it should say the other and shareholders agreements and all the rest of it. And then we rely solely on those agreements to, um, to mitigate the relationship between all of the parties. That is a huge mistake. As a lawyer, I expect to be able to put all of those documents in a drawer and never look at them again. And the, the way that we achieve that is that the parties to those agreements and those documents keep the conversations going. So it's another way of saying what we've already spoken about, but don't be fooled into thinking that I've really negotiated this timesheet really hard. That's covered everything. You know, the, the responsibility to consistently have those conversations, to be truthful and honest, falls on the parties. And, you know, I know that's how lawyers make their money is from, you know, when when those relationships fall apart. But nobody, nobody wins from disputes or litigation other than lawyers themselves. So that's the thing that I would add from a kind of a professional point of view. Jane, it's been such a pleasure to be able to talk with and listen to you here on the Startup Survival Podcast. And your resource recommendation is perfect, as I always ask guests now to suggest and share relevant material with listeners. And to be able to involve you in the finale of this series feels so right and appropriate. Thank you so much for giving your time and sharing your stories and insight. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Well, there you go. Jane Murray, lawyer, entrepreneur, investor, and business advisor, helping to guide you through your entrepreneurial future.
One key thread of this series is that entrepreneurial life is an emotional roller coaster, and to survive the journey, you have to continually tune into and manage your emotions. If you're in a startup team of any size, make sure you are having those important conversations. Even if you work alone, you will have people around you with whom you can talk. If you find the chats difficult, remember Jane's words. They will get easier with practice. And if you and or others find them really difficult, it could well be a red flag. And if you don't do something now, much bigger weeds will grow. But hopefully you will have those regular reflections and chats. And by doing so, your frank and honest discussions will keep you headed in the right direction. Well, before I head off, let me take a moment to recognise Jane Murray. Jane, thank you for being my special guest here on the Startup Survival Podcast and for sharing your invaluable advice and deep-rooted expertise. And let me salute Chris for his research, LJ for the LSC support and all at SimVenture for the pass-out I get for doing this podcast. And of course to Duncan, who is the show's producer and many years ago was also lead guitarist with that band I mentioned, 12 Angry Men. Cheers, Dunk. I am immensely grateful for everything you do, not least giving permission rights for publishing the Sea Jam Moth's Keep Your Distance track throughout this series. On that note, a full track, including vocals of Keep Your Distance, is now also available to download with this podcast series. I strongly recommend a listen. So, All of this just leaves me to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and supporting this series. The good news, well, depending on your point of view, is that Series 3 will be back in January 2022. And I look forward to meeting more people, discussing and sharing startup stories, as well as learning about innovative entrepreneurial ideas. Meanwhile, please do stay in touch, connect with me on LinkedIn, and if you get the chance, I'd love you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. So, this all leads me to the very final words. My name's Peter Harrington, and this has been your Startup Survival podcast series. Go well, stay safe, and thank you.